The scripture reading for this morning is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, each week, uh, Eric or I take a a moment during the introduction to uh, reorient you to the historical context of Hebrews. We remind ourselves why this book was written. We do that for a couple of reasons. One, simply because context matters. We know better how to apply the truths of Hebrews in our lives as we consider what was going on in their lives, the people who first received this sermon or better said, as we connect with what they were experiencing as Christians, the external pressures, the internal struggles that they were facing, we can better listen alongside them as we understand how our external pressures and internal struggles match and align with theirs. The second reason is simply because it grounds this letter in history. Christianity is an historical Religion. The Bible's not a fairy tale. It's not a book of principles to live by. This is a real letter written to real people in a real place at a real point in the history of the world. And so I want to take a moment in the introduction this morning to reflect on those external pressures and internal struggles that the people in this real place at this real time were experiencing so that we can, I pray, hear the burden of the author of this letter for the people to whom he was writing. So you've heard us say that this letter is written to Jewish converts to Christianity in or near Rome who were beginning to experience persecution under Nero and were being tempted to turn away and revert back into their Judaism in order to avoid their persecution. But we need to stop and pause for a moment and put ourselves in their shoes. These are people who had already experienced a round of persecution prior to Nero. You read about it in chapter 10. These are people who had had their property plundered. These are people who had been exposed to public ridicule and affliction. These are people who had been imprisoned for their faith, but they had stood firm. They had stood firm in the face of that public ridicule and affliction. When 
those, those who weren't in prison went and visited those who were in prison for their faith. They had joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew they had a better and abiding one, namely the eternal city that was to come, the city without foundations whose builder and architect was God. But now they're beginning to experience persecution again and they're beginning to lose heart. Can you blame them? Can you relate to them? You may know people who, like them, have faced years, perhaps a lifetime of external pressures and internal struggles, people who endured so much, so faithfully, but then turned away. You may know people who seemed so devoted to the truth of Christianity. They knew the culture and they knew the scriptures and they knew how to apply the latter to the former in really creative and outstanding ways. And then they repudiated the faith altogether. Our hearts break for those people who we know and love who have turned away. Maybe we look back and wish that we had better warned them of the danger that they were in, or, or, or maybe that we had urged them to, to turn away from, to, 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 to turn away from Jesus is to turn away from their only hope of salvation. Maybe we're, we hurt because we know that maybe we missed an opportunity. Maybe we wish we could go back and remind them of these things, that no matter how weak and uncertain they felt in their faith, no matter how hard, really hard their life had become, God loved them. He would see them through. His grip on them would always be stronger than their grip on him. Well, now perhaps you have a sense of the burden of the author of Hebrews for the people to whom he was writing. People facing great external pressures, deep internal struggles, that were overwhelming them. I pray that you will leave here this morning with some sense of the burden that the author of scripture, the Lord of history feels for you in the face of the external pressures and internal struggles, the overwhelming anxiety, the paralyzing doubt, the unspoken fears that you carry with you this morning. You see, it's, it's not just to those who can relate to what was happening the original audience of Hebrews, it's to all of us who are listening this morning. To every one of us, this passage offers a severe warning. A severe warning that those who turn away from Christ will perish. That turning away from Jesus is fatal. It also provides the basis for an unshakable assurance that God will see his own through to the end. And then finally, it describes for us the faith that finishes well. So three things, a severe warning, an unshakable assurance, and the faith that finishes well. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that, oh Lord, that you would that you would afflict those who are too comfortable. In some way, that's all of us. I pray, O Lord, that you would bring conviction of sin and that you would bring with that conviction of sin that great gift of repentance and faith that we might look to you and be restored to you. Those of us who have wandered into the far country 
Oh God, would you afflict us that we might be comforted? Or those of us who are deeply afflicted because we are shaking and, and wondering if we're truly saved. Maybe our assurance is weak when it should be strong. Oh God, would you comfort us? Then in our fear and our doubt, we would know the assurance of your grace and your love toward us. And then would you help us all to finish well? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, a severe warning. And if you consider what the passage said last week that we looked at alongside this week's passage, you hear, first of all, that there is no treading water in the Christian life. There is no treading water in the Christian life. If last week's passage said you should be growing, you should be teachers by now. This week's passage is saying you will fall away. Chapter two, verse one of Hebrews warns that they are at risk of drifting away. It's a nautical term. It says, you know, it invites us to picture a ship that, that's anchor is not down and it's just at the mercy of the currents of the sea. What the author of Hebrews has been saying and will continue to say throughout Hebrews is you're either anchored or you're adrift. You're either growing or you're dying. There's no treading water in the Christian life. And here, what he says in this passage is that there are some who seem like Christians who will fall away. So let's look back at verses four and five. It is impossible, the author says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, let's just take those, those phrases real quick enlightened. These are people who have received the knowledge of God's truth, tasted of the heavenly gift. These are people who have experienced the blessings of God and of being part of God's family. People who have shared in the Holy Spirit. They've seen the Spirit of God at work in the, the, the gathered people of God, perhaps even have been used by the Spirit of God to do remarkable things. Judas was used among the 12 to heal. People who have tasted the goodness of the word, they've sat under the preaching of the word perhaps for years. That sounds like someone who is a Christian. Anyone who would say these things are true of them would say, I am a Christian. And the author of Hebrews is saying, not if you turn away not if you turn away. The, the original audience who received this, again, Jewish converts to Christianity, they knew their Jewish history. They would have been hearing, again, Hebrews read all at once. We looked at Hebrews 3 a long time ago. They would have just heard Hebrews 3, which said, don't be like the people in the wilderness in the Exodus generation who refused to listen to God, who refused to believe his promises, and then ended up dying in the wilderness. And as they heard this passage read in Hebrews chapter six, they would have remembered, oh yeah, that generation had been enlightened. They had seen the pillar of fire guiding the people and protecting them throughout the wilderness. They would have tasted of the heavenly gift. They would have tasted the manna from heaven. They had, they had seen the power of the spirit of God in the parting of the Red Sea. They had sat under Moses when he read the law of God to them and they died in the wilderness because they turned away. Now, who needs to hear this warning 
today? Well, clearly people who are suffering need to hear this warning today because that's what they were experiencing, suffering and persecution and and all manner of hardship. People who are suffering today may be tempted to turn away. Also people, I would say, who have been raised in the church. Again, keep in mind, these were Jewish converts to Christianity. They saw themselves and their forebears as God's people. And so to say, I'm just gonna fall back into Judaism, it's safe, and and we are the people of God, aren't we? You can go to church your entire life and presume upon your relationship with the Lord. You can say, I've been baptized, I've made profession of faith. This is especially a risk for our children who have been raised in the church. Surely I'm a Christian, I've gone to church my whole life. People who've grown complacent when it comes to their walk with the Lord need to hear this warning. I saw a meme earlier this week that said, the danger of missing church is that soon you don't miss it. People without a strong foundation need this warning that are caught up in the cultural riptide of secularism and deconstruction. People distracted by the cares of the world. Isn't that the warning of the parable of the sower that the, the cares of the world choke out the seed of life. People whose lives produce weeds and not fruit. That's what the author was saying in verses seven and eight. Let me read that again for us. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whom it is cultivated, receive a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless. If you put your trust in Jesus and, you, and yet your life continues, again, the, the, the video of your life, not a snapshot at any given moment. But if the pattern of your life reveals thorns and thistles and not fruit, you need to hear this warning. In other words, we all need to hear this warning. Every one of us. The author tells us it is impossible for such people to be saved. Let me read verse six. It is impossible... I said all these things, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. They're not able to repent because they've rejected the only path, the only way from the far country of sin to the Father's side is along the path that's labeled repentance and faith in Jesus. And if you reject that path, there is no hope. You are in your rejection of Christ, numbering yourselves among those who mocked him for going to the cross in the first place. That's what it means to expose Jesus to ridicule and scorn. The clear response is don't turn away from Jesus. Don't turn away. And if you have turned away and you're here this morning or you're watching on the live stream at some point in history, Return along the path of repentance and faith in Jesus. And for those of us who have family, who have friends, people we love who appear to be apostate, who appear to be those who have made a deliberate and definitive break with the faith they once professed, 
Let me remind you of two things. The first is that nothing is impossible for God. Yes, it is impossible for us to restore such people to the Lord. And if their hearts remain hardened toward the way of Christ, it will be impossible for them to be restored. But Jesus said, what is impossible for man is not impossible for God. The second thing I want to remind us of is that we don't know the end of the story. We cannot, we must not ever look upon someone and say, this person is eternally lost. As long as there is breath in their lungs, the story is not finished. We can continue to pray. We continue to share. We continue to watch for the fruit of repentance and faith. So there is here a severe warning. All who reject Jesus will be lost. But there is also in this passage an offer of unshakable assurance, of unshakable assurance. Take a look with me at verses um, 9 and 10. We'll We'll read 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So let's take a moment and unpack some of that here in our second point, the offer of unshakable assurance. The author is confident of their salvation for two reasons. There's two things. One thing that he sees in them and one thing that he knows about God. This is from uh, Richard Phillips' commentary on Hebrews, which is excellent. I encourage you to pick it up if you don't have it. Richard Phillips points out that the author sees fruit in them, fruit that accompanies salvation. He sees their love for God. He sees their love for God's people. He sees their labor in God's name. And he says, listen, looking back at seven through eight, we can do this. This is what it looks like for the rain to fall down on good soil and produce a good harvest. That fruit is being born in your lives. He's saying to them, even as he warns them, he's saying to them, I see that the rain is producing good fruit in you. And so he's confident because of the fruit that he's seeing. He's also confident because he knows that God is just. Again, verse 10, God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. God sees your life. God sees the fruit that's being born there. He knows your weakness. He knows how far short We all fall, but he sees. I love how Richard Phillips put it. Though God forgets our every sin, he remembers every act of love we ever expressed to him. That's such a comfort. The God of the universe knows and remembers every act of love we ever expressed to him. Can we have that same kind of assurance for ourselves? Uh, I'm going through the Westminster Confession of Faith right now. Uh, It's our annual officer training, and we haven't gotten to chapters 17 and 18 yet, but chapters 17 and 18 of the Westminster Confession are some of the most pastoral uh, chapters that you will read in the entire Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 17 is titled, Of the Perseverance of the Saints. I'm going to read just a few uh, sections of it. 
Section 1 of chapter 17, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. And then listen, this perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ, the abiding of the Spirit and of the seed of God within them. Do you see what's happening there? Our perseverance, our assurance is ultimately grounded on who God is what God has promised to do. In fact, the entire Trinity is pointed to when it comes to our perseverance in the confession. Why do Christians persevere to the end? Because God perseveres with us. Chapter 18 of the confession, of the assurance of grace and salvation. Listen to this. Those who truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace. But then it goes on to say this, and this is so powerful. This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith. Now that word infallible in that day and age when the confession was written meant trustworthy. It meant reliable. It didn't mean infallible like we tend to think of infallible. It simply meant that we can possess a trustworthy, a reliable assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation the inward evidence of those graces under which these promises are made and the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. In other words, as we hold on to the promises, what God has said that he will do, how he will abide with us, even as we, in the strength that he provides, seek to abide in Jesus. As we hold fast to the promises, as we look to the fruit that's being born in our lives out of the inward fruit that's happening within us by the power of his spirit, as we allow his spirit to testify to our spirit that we are indeed children of God, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. As that becomes more of a reality in our lives, the confession is, and I don't have time to take you to the 119 scripture references in chapters 17 and 18 to reinforce what I just read. But as that happens in our lives, entirely by God's grace, we can have a reliable, trustworthy, personal assurance of our salvation. Let's take the time now to look at the faith that finishes well. We, we, we hear the warning. We need to be encouraged, comforted by the offer of real, unshakable Assurance concerning our salvation. But let's look finally at the faith that finishes well. I'm going to read one more section from the confession. I hope you all go read the confession of faith. I'm going to read one more section from that and then come back to the text to finish up there. In chapter 18 of the confession, section 3, after telling us that our assurance of faith is reliable, trustworthy, it acknowledges that it's not automatic and unwavering. 
This infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. Yet being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the right use of the ordinary means, attain thereunto. What, what did that just say? What it acknowledges is that we should not expect that the, the moment we become a Christian, we have this full and reliable assurance and faith, of faith that never wavers until the day we die. In fact, what it's saying is that you can be a Christian and spend most of your life wrestling with this sense, am I really one of God's own? Yet at the same time, not because the heavens part and God speaks and says, you are my own, but through the ordinary means of grace, worship, study of the word of God, the sacraments, prayer, fellowship, through the ordinary ways in which God's, God works in and among his people, we can grow in this reliable, trustworthy assurance that God offers us as a free gift of his grace. And I think the author of Hebrews is reflecting some of that. Of course, we, we could turn to many more passages of scripture to bear that, to, to unpack that. But I think we see some of that here, even in this passage in verses nine through 12. Let me just look at the, the way the passage ends. In verse 12, those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, it's a, you want the faith that finishes well? You remember that we're not trying to secure something for ourselves. We're receiving that which God ultimately offers us, namely salvation, something we inherit not something we have to merit. So the author of Hebrews, looking back to last week, chapter five, verse 12, would say, keep growing. What characterizes the faith that endures to the end? A commitment to just keep growing, to be in the word, to be letting God work by his spirit through his word to convict us of sin, to encourage us, to draw us closer to Jesus. Keep growing. Secondly, keep striving. Look at verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. Not sluggish, but earnest. Keep striving. Keep watching. I love but imitators in verse 12. So yeah, keep watching for Christ's return. We see that in Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where he says that we all are eagerly anticipating the appearing of Christ. We're longing for his return. But here, in, in light of what he's been saying, I think we also can consider imitators in the sense of looking to one another. Keep watching. Keep looking to your brothers and sisters in the faith. Keep trusting. Again, verse 12, faith in the promises. Keep waiting with patience for the inheritance to come. This is the picture of faith that finishes well. In other words, just keep running. Just keep running. In the opening heat of the men's 5,000 meter at the World Athletics Championship in 2019, Brema Dabo of Guinea-Bissau was overtaking Jonathan Busby of Aruba 
when he noticed that Busby was in pain and not likely to be able to finish. So he, he helped him. <laughs> he grabbed him under the arm and, and then he slung his arm around his head so he could nearly carry him the final 50 or so meters to the finish line. The whole stadium was on its feet cheering. There was a, as it were, a great crowd of witnesses cheering them on as they finished the race. That's a picture of our life together. We hope alongside one another. That's what we do. We help each other to just keep running, to just keep moving, to finish well in the faith all the way to the end. No one else on earth may see it, but there is a great cloud of witnesses. All the hosts of heaven, as it were, on their feet, cheering us on. But don't forget, God is the one who gets his own to the finish line. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Derek Redmond was a sprinter for Great Britain at the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona. In the semifinals of the 400-meter sprint, just prior to the halfway point, he grabbed the back of his right thigh, torn hamstring. He fell to the track. Every other runner ran by. He was alone. He got up. He began to hop on his left foot. He was determined to finish the race. The crowd was on its feet, cheering him on. And then his father ran out. His father grabbed him, and Derek put his head on his father's shoulder, and he wept. And Jim wrapped his arm, his dad wrapped his arm around his waist, and they made their way together to the finish line. And there was a great cloud of witnesses cheering them on all the way. And what the author of Hebrews would say is, don't leave the track. Don't leave the track. Just keep running. You want the assurance of faith to the end? It's not in your ability to finish the race. It is not in the ability of your fellow runners to help you. Your assurance that you will endure to the end is in your heavenly Father who will carry you with all heaven on its feet, shouting, Glory. Just don't leave the track, just keep running. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we, we grieve for those who have left the track or who are considering doing so. And we pray, oh God, that you, would, that you would be a father who runs out to them. Or so many of us are on the track even now, feeling weary like we can't go on. Would we be a faithful church loving one another as we have been loved, coming alongside one another, helping one another to the end. But Lord, our hope, our confidence is always and forever in you. We pray that you would help us by your spirit to press on. And we give you thanks for the assurance that because of what you have done, we will. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen.